As we come now to the word of the Lord to receive his wisdom, we return once again as well to this study that we started at the beginning of Advent and that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you've been with us for the past two weeks, you know that two weeks ago we looked at the end of the world that I've been calling the world that was, and there's a very simple reason for that. It's the world that was because it no longer is. So two weeks ago we looked at the end of the world that began, at least biblically, on page one of the Bible. But then when we got to chapter 7, it ended, and it ended in sudden, it ended in unexpected, at least for all of the people outside of the family of Noah, which is the family of faith left in that world in that day. And, and yes, this is very intense, it is apocalyptic, but we are talking about the end of the world, so cataclysmic judgment upon humanity. It's a feel-good story. And then last week, we came together and we looked at the beginning of the world that is, the one in which you and I live in presently. And here's what we noticed, among other things. We noticed that the world that is, the one that we're living in, began in exactly the same way as, well, that world that was, that he originally created on page one of the Bible. It followed precisely the same pattern in that both of these worlds, for example, were born out of worlds that were at least originally dark and dead and chaotic and empty and covered in water and so forth. But here's what else we saw. We also learned that, you know what, this world that is, the one that we live in presently, okay, it's going to end the same way as that world that was. And again, that's kind of the scary part of the whole deal. This is going to be week three of, holy cow, the world is going to end. But why is it going to end? Because we've talked about that too. We've said that the world that is is going to end the same way as the world that was because it's the same kind of world. It is same in its nature. It is same in its character, just like the world of Noah, in other words. Our world, too, is a world that is full of greed and of corruption and of injustice and of suffering and of sorrows, of degradations of all kinds, of holocausts, of massacres. If you name it, just turn on the news. You know what it's all about. It's a world in which we need police departments, and we're thankful, therefore, then, that we have them. But we're not thankful that we need them. It's a world in which we need hospitals, and we're thankful, therefore, that we have them. But we're not thankful that we need them. It's a world in which we need graveyards, for crying out loud. Nobody's excited about that. But that's the world in which we live. It is a world, if you think about it, in which everyone and everything that everyone creates in this world short of God dies. So we're starting low, but we're not going to end low today. The last two weeks, we've talked soberly and directly about the fact that God, in the end, must bring judgment. And why must He bring judgment to our world just like He did to the world of Noah? Well, because A, that world is very much the reflection of our world, and B, okay, we're also dealing with the same God. And so how can God be perfectly just? How can God be perfectly holy? How can God be perfectly righteous? How can God be God, we've said, and not at some point bring that to an end? Like, how can He tolerate that for forever? He can't, and we don't even want Him to. We've said that too. It's like deep down within each one of us, we realize, you know what, we are longing for a world in which we don't need police departments and hospitals and lawyers and counselors and graveyards and funeral homes and armies and all of that stuff. It's like we know we're made for something better, and in fact, we are. Lord, bring the chaos to an end. Well, He must do that. Because of who he is, it will flow out of his nature. But not only must he do that, he must right every wrong. He must set everything right. Like no one in the end will ever get away with anything. 
We look at people, they get away with things. We get away with things. We get away with things all of the time in this life, don't we? Let's just be honest. No, we don't. At least not in the end. Why? Because in the end, God must also, as an expression of his perfect justice, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, just reason it through. It's inescapable. He must judge every evildoer for every evil deed, no matter how great or even how small. God cannot, because of who he is, even overlook what we look at and go, oh, come on, really, that's just a little thing. And it is compared to so many other things, but perfect justice. And that creates a bit of a quandary. So we've talked for the last couple of weeks about, okay, how God must, in the end, bring judgment. Now, here's the good news. We've talked also about how God brings deliverance from that judgment, how God brings eternal life as opposed to eternal death, and how God will also transport us to, in the end, the very world that we're all longing for. No police departments, no armies, no hospitals, no lawyers, no counselors, no graveyards, no conflict. That's good news, guys. And you say, well, how did he do that? Well, in the previous world, how did he do it? Because it's a picture of what he will do in the end now in this world. In the previous world, God delivered the only family of God left, which was Noah and his family, from the flood of his judgment through an ark, which is a picture of Jesus, and by which they floated above the waters of judgment, as you'll recall the story, and by which also they were transported to a brand new world. Is that not the case? And so it is with the gospel, so it is with Christ, so it is with us today. Guys, through Jesus Christ, what happens? We escape the coming flood, we'll put it in quotes, of the judgment of the Lord in the end, and we are transported safely to a brand new world that He will make, one in which righteousness dwells. It will never need to be cleansed. It's an amazing thing. See, Jesus is the true ark of God. He's the one who loved us so much that he did not forsake us when we forsook him, but instead he became one of us and then lived the only truly good as God life ever lived, a life that does not call forth judgment but blessing. And then on the cross, he suffered infinitely the judgment of Almighty God for me and for you, for the great stuff we've done, the big bad things, and even all the little things that the perfect justice of God might be perfectly and wholly and completely satisfied for all who climb aboard the true ark of God, who is Jesus, through faith. And in the end, it's not judgment that we receive. It's the blessing that He earned. It's the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll begin to look at next week. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the world that was and the world that is and how it is that they both began the same way and in their beginning followed precisely the same pattern. And today, we're going to look yet again at the idea that they both end the same way, but not just end in the same place, but end in the same place because just like the beginning, okay, this world follows precisely the same pattern as that previous World. So what I want to talk about today and look at with you guys and reason together with about is how this world ends and exactly what is the sequence or chronology of events, at least as best we can construct them from the scriptures by which the world ends. But then having done that, I want to get to the all important question that we've been asking for the last two weeks and ask again today, which is what? It's good grief. If that's where this whole thing is going, how am I supposed to live? How are you supposed to live? How are we as a church supposed to live right now? Because I'll tell you, teaching on the end times, and you're going to see this today, 
The expressly stated purpose of teaching on the end times is not to make us fearful, and it's not to make us prideful. It is to motivate us to live today in light of what's coming, and not just for us, but for everyone. Guys, the door to the ark, if you will, is open, (laughs) and our job is get as many people on it as we possibly can. That's the idea. But first, let's look at how the world ends. And I want to do that today by looking at 2 Peter 3. And maybe, you know, you're thinking, why would you go there? I mean, isn't that what the book of Revelation is all about? And my response to that is maybe, maybe not. Does that stun you a little bit? I told the worship team, this is going to be move your cheese Sunday, okay? Because this is going to blow some things up for some of you, but I just hope that you'll consider them. Maybe, maybe not. One of the debates about the book of Revelation, and it is a significant debate in terms of what it actually is talking about, is when was it dated? Did you even know that there's a debate about that? Because there is, and it's a big one. So it was written either in the 60s, AD 60s in the first century, or in the 90s in the first century. And the reason that matters is because in AD 70, which I think we'd all agree fits in between the 60s and the 90s, the city of Jerusalem, the most significant city, the one that stood opposed to Jesus and crucified the Savior, was utterly and completely destroyed by the Roman Empire, including its temple, just as Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 in a stunningly precise prophetic statement said that it would be. So, if it's written in the 60s, and it's written to Christians, which we all agree on, well, it almost certainly then is referring almost completely, not quite, but almost completely to that event. And I'll tell you plainly, that's what I think. But if it's written to the 90s, well, then that leaves it open to speak to future events for us today, does it not? Of course it does. But I'm going to go to 2 Peter 3 anyway, because in addition to that, the book of Revelation speaks almost entirely in images, in symbols, in signs, in types, in poetic language. You know that, do you not? I mean, I don't think anybody ever for the first time has read the book of Revelation and gone, well, clearly this is what it's saying. We get about three chapters in and we're like, holy cow, how much more of this is there? You know, I don't know what to make of this. Peter will come to us today and Jesus will second to this. You'll hear it. And he will not come speaking in images or in symbols or in signs or in types. He will sit down with us and speak directly and plainly. He's going to say, oh, you want to know how the world ends? (laughs) Okay. Here is what happens. First this, then this, then this, then this, and this is where it ends. Here is the sequence of events. He even uses chronological language. I'll point it out. It's a very clear conversation. And we need to interpret what is less clear... That would be the book of Revelation. In light of what is more clear, that would be 2 Peter 3. So let's look at how the world ends, and let's do that by looking at 2 Peter 3. Writing in plain language, Peter says this, beginning in verse 1. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Now, hold on. Who's the beloved? Because from the very first verse of this letter, and that's what this book is, it's a letter. He tells us who the beloved is, and he makes it plainly clear that the beloved that he's writing to here and that he's referring to here again in chapter 3 and will refer to again in just a moment is a community of believers. He's writing to the church, to people who have faith in Christ. Keep that in mind. It actually matters later. He says, now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of these letters of mine, here's what I'm doing. 
My purpose is I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So I'm reminding you of something so that you should remember. But what? The predictions of the holy prophets whose predictions are recorded in the Old Testament and the commandment of the Lord and Savior whose commandment is recorded for us by the apostles in the New Testament. And he notes that through your apostles. And so what is he saying? He's saying, guys, look, I've written you this letter because I want to stir up your mind. I want to remind you of something that you already know that all of the Old Testament and that all of the New Testament are in complete agreement on. So then what is that? Knowing this, first of all, that's chronological language. He's going to lay out a sequence Okay, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come when? In the last days. So that's what he's talking about, meaning the last days of what world? This one that we're living in. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, because, you know, that's what scoffers do, following their own sinful desires, that's their motivation, and here's what they will say. They will say, where is the promise of Jesus coming? So in the last days, they'll rise up and go, hey, I know that you guys say that Jesus is coming back at all, but where the heck is he? Where is the promise of Jesus coming upon which, by the way, he said that he would bring judgment upon all of us, you know, evildoers and and all of these people that don't believe in Jesus, but he'll bring you deliverance and life in the whole new world and all of that stuff. Where where, where is his coming? That's, That's question and criticism number one. And then here's the second thing, not only that, but forever since the fathers fell asleep, they will say, all things are continuing just as they were from when? From the beginning of creation. Let me just translate that. Peter is coming to us and going, all right, let's talk about how it's all going to end. Here's what's going to happen. In the last days, scoffers are going to rise up and they're going to mock you for your faith, just like they did Noah. They're going to go, oh my goodness, so this Jesus of yours, he's going to come back, right? And when he does, he's going to bring judgment upon me, right? And all the people that don't believe in him, is that right? And then he's going to deliver you though, and you're going to have eternal life and a whole new world and, and all of that stuff. That's, that's what he's going to claim. Okay, well, A, where is this Jesus of yours? Because it's been 2,000 years and uh, where is he? Oh, and B, while we're on the topic of judgment... How in the world can you believers claim that God is going to bring the world to an end in judgment when God has never once since the beginning of the world in Genesis chapter 1 brought judgment to the world? But wait a minute. What does that overlook? Because we looked at it two weeks ago. It overlooks Genesis 7, does it not? It overlooks the flood of Noah. So here's my response to you as a community of Christians who are committed to the Scriptures, who believe in the Bible. Hey guys, what about the flood of Noah? Like, what about that? But I wouldn't necessarily try that one out at the office. You know, that's a conversation killer. Well, how do you claim that judgments are going to come on the wall? The flood of Noah. You know what? Look at the time. I got to go. I, you know, I think I'd go with the character and nature of God. But Peter's writing to believers, and he's encouraging our faith in the face of scoffing and doubt, because it's hard to deal with that. Oh, let me remind you of what you already know, what all of the Old Testament says, what all of the New Testament says. Hey, it says that you're going to A, face these kind of scoffings, and B, don't forget what the Scriptures teach. So he comes to us as Christians with the flood of Noah. It's where he goes. 
Beginning in verse 5, he says, look, these scoffers deliberately, that is to say they intentionally overlook something, and now he's going to tell us that that something is the flood of Noah, but why do they deliberately and intentionally overlook it? Because that's pretty easy too. He's already told us they're living lives in which they're following their sinful desires, just like all of us have done. We're no better. We're no different. And when you're following your sinful desires, what do you want to be free to do? You want to be free to follow them wherever in the world they lead you, and you want to be free to do that without having to worry about any kind of accountability coming down the road. So judgment is not a happy topic. It's, it's, it's politically incorrect. It's socially an anathema. Just don't even go there. But Peter's coming to us and saying, listen, they overlooked something. And it's an important something. He says these scoffers deliberately overlook this singularly important fact. Fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by means of the Word of God. What is that? Because we looked at that story. That's page one of the Bible. That's the originally created world. But then he adds this, and they deliberately overlook as well, the fact that by means of these, meaning by means of water, that world that then existed was deluged with water and perished in the flood of Noah. And that's significant because Peter now says, by the same word of that same judgment bringing and, very importantly, deliverance bringing God, the heavens and the earth that what? That now exist are likewise being stored up for fire as opposed to water. But what do both fire and water do? They purify things. They cleanse things. That's the idea. Being kept, he says, until when? Until the day. One day. It's a singular day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly that really is coming just like it did in Noah's world. And then he comes to us because, again, it's a letter to us. And he says, hey, here's something I don't want you guys to overlook. And I love this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And what is that one fact? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God wears a different watch. He counts time differently. And it's fascinating to me that in the first century, when Peter is writing this, he's already thinking in terms of thousands of years. Like he could have said, look, don't, don't overlook the fact that, I mean, God counts time differently. And so like a day is like a week to him. Or a day is like a month. A day is like a year. A day is like a decade. A day is like a century. That would have been enough to make the point. But he uses thousands Do not overlook, he says, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So to us, it's been 2,000 years, which, you know, I'll grant you, feels overwhelming. I mean, that's an eternity to us. But God is not like us. That's the point. To him, it's just been a normal weekend. It's like Saturday, Sunday. It's just turning now into Monday. And then he goes on and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return. And you say, well, then, you know, what in the world is he waiting for? I mean, explain the delay. Okay, well, Peter goes on and he does that. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, but is patient toward who? Everyone on earth? No. All the believers and unbelievers alike? No. 
Who is the beloved? Who is he writing to? Who is the letter to? Who does he say this to? To you. Curious, isn't it? To those who have faith in Jesus and to those who will yet have faith in Jesus, for God has ordained it to be so. And that's really the point. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish in the judgment that will come on the day of that singular return of Jesus, but instead that all of you should reach repentance and then through that repentance find deliverance and life in a holy new world. That's the point. So what is he saying then? He's saying, bottom line, listen, Jesus is not going to return until every person that Almighty God has sovereignly ordained to get on the true ark of God, who is Jesus prior to the flood of his wrath, gets on the boat through faith in Christ. Then he will shut the door. Then the Lord will return. That's the idea. And then in verse 10, he tells us what that return will be like. He says, but the day of the Lord, that singular day of the one and only return of Jesus will come like a thief. That is to say, suddenly and unexpectedly, just as it did, at least from the perspective of all the people outside of the Noah's family who lived in that world that was. And now notice the chronological language again, because he says, and then. Did you hear that? And then what will happen? Well, when he comes, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And as I showed you last week, Jesus agrees for, again, he says in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, speaking of his return, he says, but concerning that singular day, that day and hour of my one and only return is the point. No one knows exactly when that's going to be, but not even the angels, (laughs) not the Son, but the Father only, he says, for as were the days of, here it is, Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, for as in those days before the sudden, unexpected, and cataclysmic, I mean, you know, it is the end of the world, so you just got to have to own that, flood of God's judgment, they, meaning those people who were alive with Noah in that day, were eating and drinking and marrying, and giving in marriage, and going about their business as usual as if nothing was coming, scoffing at Noah for believing that judgment was actually going to come, until the day, again a singular day, when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware of of the impending judgment until the flood came and swept them all away, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And as I showed you, Peter says the same thing. And he gets it, no doubt, from the Lord. And so what that means, practically speaking, is just in terms of our end times theology, and this is the kind of move your cheese part, is that there's absolutely no room in the mind of Jesus or in the mind of Peter. And we just need to say this out loud and deal with it as friends. For any idea that Jesus will return, but not all the way, just half the way, and when he returns on that singular Wait, no. Yeah, day. He won't bring judgment. But instead, he'll rapture all of his people and he'll take them away for seven years while there's a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. Well, Peter just gave us a chronology that's not in there. After which he'll then come back again, this time all the way, but he still won't bring judgment. So his return again a second time, which is not comprehended at all by the Lord or by Peter. But now we've got two comings. And neither one comes with judgment, 
But upon the second time, then there's a thousand-year millennial kingdom, at the end of which there's a great battle, at the end of which then there is judgment. Then the heavens and earth that presently exist are burned up and renewed, and there's a new heavens and a new earth. I'm very thankful that pretty much no matter what end times theory you ascribe to, that it does all end up with new heavens and new earth. And I have a feeling that when we all get there, you know, and we'll be sinless, so there won't be pride involved, we'll all be able to high-five the ones who got it right, okay? (laughs) It'll be awesome. But that's not in there, guys. That is not comprehended in the plain language of Peter or in the plain language of Jesus, but that is what many very sincere, godly, intelligent, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, mission-going-after brothers and sisters of ours, including probably quite a few of you, sincerely believe that the book of Revelation, which may or may not be dated in a place that would cause it to speak of future events, and that speaks in images and signs and symbols, almost entirely says. And I think we need to be careful Because one of the first and most formative principles for interpreting the Bible is we interpret that which is less clear by that which is more clear. And I will give you 2 Peter 3 and Revelation, and you decide which one is clearer. It's a simple choice. So anyway, following the lead of Jesus, Peter again says, but the day, it's one day of the Lord, he comes back, once is the idea. Well, it will come like a thief. And then, chronological language, immediately upon that is the point. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done in it will be exposed. And now please notice what Peter does next. Because what he does is he immediately takes us to question number two that we're dealing with today, which is what? Okay, How should I now live? Now, why does he do that? Because teaching on the end times is not meant to inspire all of our curiosities. It's not meant to cause us to now have a new hobby. It's not meant to make us fearful. It's not meant to make us prideful. It's meant to get us moving. It's meant to inform and create in us an urgency about living and about how to live now in light of what we know will come, no matter how we get there. He says, since all these things, meaning all the things of this world, now let's just be honest, that we work our tails off to gain, that we find our identity in a lot of times, that we worship to varying degrees, but I think that is a sweeping statement that applies to all of us. All of these things, he says, are thus to be dissolved. They're destined to perish in the end. What sort of people ought you to be? in lives in which you're following after your sinful desires, just like everyone else? No. Lives in which you're called to not do that, but by the power of God's Spirit living in you in accordance with God's Word, which comes to us and says, here, here's how to live. In community with God's people who can walk alongside us, who can preach the gospel to us, not if, but when we fail, and we fail again and again and again. 
But what is this journey of sanctification? It is one in which we die progressively more and more unto sin and live progressively more and more unto righteousness. That is to say, live lives that are more and ever increasingly so holy, lives that are more and ever increasingly so godly. And as a result, our light and darkness, they stand out. They're different, markedly so, from lives of other folks. He says, what sort of people ought you to be since... We've now heard the chronology of the end in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for, but not in an inactive way, not in a, you know, I'm just going to kind of kick back and turn on the game and check out until Jesus returns because he's going to come back and set it all right and that's the deal and I'm just waiting. No, 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 no. It's a very active waiting. It's a, it's a hyperactive waiting. It's a real motivated waiting. It's an incredibly high sense of urgency waiting. It is an all-in, I'm throwing everything I got at it kind of waiting. Waiting for and what? Hastening, there it is, the coming day of God. And you say, well, how in the world do I hasten God's coming? Well, just go back and apply Peter's logic. If Jesus is not going to return, and that's what we want to hasten, isn't it? Until everyone that God has ordained to come to faith in Jesus, in fact, comes to faith in Jesus, how do we hasten His return? By telling everyone that we can about Jesus. (laughs) By making sure the gospel gets out there so that God's people might be claimed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening through the gospel? The coming of the day of God, because of which, he now says again, just in case we've forgotten it, The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, meaning the promise of His return upon which we'll be delivered and transported to the new world, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for that deliverance. We're waiting, He says also, for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It will never need to be washed with water or fire or anything else. And it won't have any police departments, armies, hospitals, counselors, lawyers, or graveyards. It's an awesome vision. It's an amazing ending. So maybe now you're thinking, well, what do you do with a rapture then? Because, you know, that's not in Revelation. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4, and Paul talks about that. And I'll answer it briefly, because I want to get to the how shall we now live peace. But I don't want to leave that undone. I look at it in the same way that I think that the apostles and all of the people who lived in the first century and originally read these documents, there, the original audience, looked at it. And I think if we're going to understand what these people are saying to us, we need to understand what they were saying as they understood it, and then build the bridge from there. Significant. So these people all lived during the time of the Roman Empire. And here's one of the things that universally they all understood, that when the Roman emperor would go off to war and when he would return victoriously, because that's the only way he ever returned from battle, at least in their lifetimes, he would not re-enter into his city. He would stop outside the city and he would camp with all of his victorious soldiers outside of the city and then he would send heralds into the city. And the heralds would shout and they would blast their trumpets, the good news, literally the Greek word for gospel. That the victorious king has returned and in victory. 
And then what would happen is the city would make ready for the entry of the victorious king. They'd build arches and paint their walls and, you know, make sure everything is cleaned up and looks perfect. They would be renewed is the idea. And then what would happen is only the Roman citizens, and that was not everybody. It was a unique privilege. Oh, everybody was under the governance of Rome, but not everybody legally was a citizen of Rome. Only the Roman citizens then were afforded the privilege of coming out of the city to their victorious king and to his encampment. And then together with their victorious king, they would enter in to the newly made city. Now, does that sound familiar? Because I think that is a really good illustration of the rapture and of how it will work. In other words, I think that Jesus, King Jesus, will return suddenly, unexpectedly, at least from the perspective of all those outside of the church, and honestly, I think from the perspective of a lot of us. We're called to live expectantly, and that's part of what we need to ask ourselves as we look at this kind of thing, because it's meant to give us an urgency, an expectancy. It's about how we live. But anyway, I think that King Jesus will return suddenly, unexpectedly, that his arrival will be announced by the heavenly heralds, by their shout and the deafening blasts of their trumpets. I think that the dead in Christ will rise, as Paul says, and the true citizens of King Jesus will be caught up with him in the air, and I think that's your rapture. I think those who have rejected Christ and his gospel of free grace will face judgment then and the heavens and earth will be renewed. They'll be purified with fire and be renewed by the one who makes all things new. And together with our victorious King, we will enter in to the new heavens, the new earth, where we will live with Him and forever, the earth in which righteousness dwells that Peter talks about. But here's the most important question of the day. And the question is, between then and now, okay, how do we live? How do we live today, as we've been saying for the last two weeks, in a world that we know today will one day end in judgment for those who don't believe in Jesus, but in deliverance and eternal life in this holy, new, incredible world for those who do? And Peter has answered the question, has he not? We live markedly different lives. We grow in holiness. We grow in godliness. And we throw all that we've got because it's all going to perish at the only thing that does not perish at the gospel and at the kingdom of God that God is building. We do everything that we can individually as families and as a church to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That, I think, is the answer that he's given us. And that, by the way, is the purpose statement of our church. And so next Sunday, we've been talking about the fact that please don't miss it, but be here next Sunday. We're going to begin looking at the new heavens and at the new earth as John describes it in the very last part of his book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and the first five or so, I think, verses of 22. The part that I think still applies to the future is the idea. At that world in which righteousness dwells, what, what is that world? What, what does that world look like? Who is that world? It's a, who is this city of God? I say who because it's not a what. It's a who. So what is he saying? What is that future for us and all that we can get on the ark with us, who is Jesus. What does that world look like? But it's a a day as well in which we're going to begin a really important conversation about how it is we can best accomplish our mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, we've been praying and strategizing and talking with a lot of you, and 
and really thinking through, praying through God, who are we supposed to be? And by definition, therefore, then who are we not supposed to be? What is our vision moving forward as a church? And what is it going to take for us to get there? So we're going to be talking about that, and we're going to be talking about what we need as tools so that from this campus as a church and as a school, we can build the strongest platform from which, in accordance with that vision, to do exactly this, to build the city of the Lord, to add to the who, to get the people on the ark alongside of us, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And so to set up that part of the what do we need conversation, we want to show you a video that we created a couple of months ago, and then I'll come back up and discuss it, and we'll have communion together. All right, so what's funny is we didn't stage anything but what happened in the cry room. Like when we filmed that video, all of those people that you saw in here were actually in here. (laughs) All of the kids that you saw out there in the fellowship hall were actually there. The PTF was legit meeting and in the parlor. And the only thing we did was like stage some of the things that actually occur in the cry room. And while we were in there trying to film for like 20 minutes or something, we had three people show up and somebody did actually change a diaper. So uh, I'm not a diaper changer. I'm not that guy. So... So I, uh, I do carry um, stuff from my hands. But anyway, <laughs> it's terrible. It's a big joke around here. Uh, okay, so we need new space or more space. Um, why? It's all about our mission. And if you guys come next week and, and somebody says, oh, hey, what's this mustard seed campaign about? Oh, man, it's our building campaign. Okay, unless by your building campaign, what you mean is it's our campaign to build our mission Uh, then we have failed in messaging this. It's about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you are, by the way, looking for a church and a school that uses its campus like almost 100% of the time, this is it. And what we want to do is create a little bit bigger platform and a better platform and a stronger platform from which to do ministry in our community and in our city right here and this is our plan. It's to stay here. So. so with that in mind, I think it's appropriate, really, that we come now to the table of our Savior. And it's a table that calls us to confess and to remember our sin before we approach this table. But it's a table that then calls us to come to the table that reminds us of our Savior and to experience great relief from our sin, from the judgment that all of us know that we all deserve, and we just, we do, just own that. Confess it to him and be free of it. Step one, (laughs) okay, you're right. And then receive Christ and be set free. It's the table of the one who did not ignore us, but who came. That through faith in him, through his body broken, through his blood spilled, we might be delivered. And not just us, but everyone that by God's grace we're able to lead into a relationship with that same Savior. We might be delivered. And know eternity in the world that, that we were made for. So take some time and do business with the Lord before you come to this table. Confess your sins to Him. Uh, speak to Him about what you know it is that you know, He wants you to speak to. The Spirit is very good at communicating. He's the ultimate communicator. So I don't, that shouldn't be an issue unless your heart is going, oh, I don't want to let go of this sin and it's sweeter to me than Jesus. Then don't come to the table and let that bother you until Jesus is sweeter to you than that sin. It deals also with unity. If you're out of fellowship with somebody, 
Make that right and come next month. Or if you're not a believer in Christ, then consider what Christ, and through this table, just emblematically offers to you. And don't come to the table. It's a table for believers. But, but let that provoke you to faith, to realize that this Jesus, man, He died for you too. The door to the ark is wide open. And we'd love to help you get on it. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again in deliverance and in life for all those who have faith in Him. So I'm going to pray, and then you do business with the Lord, and and then you can come forward uh, when you're ready. Father, we do thank You, Lord, for our Savior. We thank You for God not abandoning us, uh, even as we have abandoned You, for sending one who lived that we might live and who died that we might live. We thank You for what this table represents by faith the body of the perfect one broken for our sin, the blood of the spotless one shed to cover over all of our spots, to heal us, to restore us, to make us yours, to give us a mission that doesn't ever die, ultimately to transport us to a world that we know that we were made for. So Lord, help us to be honest with you about ourselves now as we come and confess our sin, but let us not stop there by any means, but rather let us be reminded in this moment of the safety that is ours in Christ, of the forgiveness that is ours, of the freedom that we know, and let us receive this with joy, we pray, and make us to live different as a result in Jesus' name. Amen.